Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, December 9th. In today's news, Bill Barr expresses concern to President Trump that Rudy Giuliani has become a liability. The FBI is investigating the Pensacola attack as an act of terrorism, and Russia will be banned from competing in the next two Olympics because of its egregiously rampant cheating. But first, the big idea. A confidential trove of government documents obtained by the Washington Post reveals that senior U.S. officials failed to tell the truth about the war in Afghanistan throughout the 18-year campaign, making rosy pronouncements they knew to be false and hiding unmistakable evidence that the war had become unwinnable. The documents were generated by a federal project examining the root failures of the longest armed conflict in U.S. history. They include more than 2,000 pages of previously unpublished notes of interviews with people who played a direct role in the war, from generals and diplomats to aid workers and Afghan officials. The U.S. government tried to shield the identities of the vast majority of those interviewed for this project and conceal nearly all of their remarks. But the Post won release of the documents under the Freedom of Information Act after a three-year legal battle. In the interviews, more than 400 insiders offered unrestrained criticism of what went wrong in Afghanistan and how the United States became mired in nearly two decades of warfare. With a bluntness rarely expressed in public, the interviews lay bare pent-up complaints, frustrations, and confessions, along with second-guessing and backbiting. My colleague Craig Whitlock, an investigative reporter who formerly covered the Pentagon and has reported for more than 60 countries, has written a very meaty six-part series on what we've learned from the documents that posted on our website this morning. The six stories highlight the contrast between what government officials under George W. Bush and Barack Obama were saying in public versus what they were saying and knew in private. Those interviewed said it was common at military headquarters in Kabul and at the White House to distort statistics to make it appear that the U.S. was winning the war when it wasn't the case. Bush and Obama had polar opposite plans to win the war, but both were destined to fail. Despite vows the U.S. wouldn't get mired in nation-building, it has wasted billions doing just that. The U.S. flooded the country with money, then turned a blind eye to the graft it fueled. Afghan security forces, despite years of training, were dogged by incompetence and corruption. The war on opium in Afghanistan has imploded at nearly every turn. As Doug Lute, a three-star army general who served as the White House's Afghan war czar during the Bush and Obama administrations, told government interviewers in 2015, quote, We were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking. Lute noted that 2,400 of our GIs had died at that point, and he blamed the losses on bureaucratic breakdowns among Congress, the Pentagon, 
and the State Department. Who will say this was in vain, he wondered. The interviews, through an extensive array of voices, bring into sharp relief the core failings of the war that persist to this day. John Sopko, the head of the federal agency that conducted these interviews, acknowledged to the Post that the documents show, quote, the American people have constantly been lied to. You can read the full reporting now on the Post's website. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, Rudy Giuliani repeatedly pressed administration officials late last year to dump Trump's nominee for ambassador to Qatar and to replace her with someone else. Giuliani, who has previously said he held a cybersecurity contract with the Qatar government in 2017 and early 2018, proposed replacing the nominee, a career foreign service officer, with someone he said would be a better fit, Scott Taylor, a Trump-supporting former congressman from Virginia. Giuliani offered to promote Taylor as a candidate for the post and help guide him through the process. During a night at a cigar bar in December and then at a lunch meeting the following day at the Trump Hotel, Giuliani described a plan to get Taylor the job, and Giuliani told Taylor that he had personally done work in Qatar, but it wasn't clear why he was interested in getting him tapped to be ambassador. When my colleagues asked Giuliani about his advocacy for Taylor in a phone interview, he laughed and hung up. Meanwhile, Trump let the nomination of the career foreign service officer expire, and the post today remains vacant. This is part of a pattern. Giuliani has taken on clients from Turkey to Venezuela to Romania to Ukraine since Trump took office. He said he doesn't need to register as a foreign agent. But since Trump took office, his actions have caused persistent alarm among the president's advisors, who worry that it is often not clear who Giuliani is representing, the president, his other private clients, or his own foreign policy views when he's meeting with people at the White House or the Justice Department or in foreign capitals. In several conversations in recent months, Attorney General Bill Barr has counseled Trump in general terms that Giuliani has become a liability and a problem for the administration. In one discussion, the Attorney General warned the president that he was not being well served by his lawyer. Now, Giuliani has been assuring the president that he's not in any legal trouble, and Trump has so far resisted entreaties to distance himself from the former New York mayor telling others that he appreciates Giuliani's combative media appearances on his behalf. In recent weeks, though, federal prosecutors subpoenaed a consulting firm founded by former FBI director Louis Free, which hired Giuliani to write an August 2018 letter to Romanian officials calling for an amnesty for people prosecuted for corruption, a policy change that would have benefited a Free client. In other news related to the cascading investigations, the House Judiciary Committee may vote to advance articles of impeachment against Trump by the end of this week. The committee will hear today from a lawyer for the Intelligence Committee on the constitutional grounds for impeachment. And the Justice Department's Inspector General is set to release his report today, concluding that the FBI was justified in pursuing surveillance warrants in 2016 against a foreign policy advisor in Trump's campaign. But the report will also detail numerous shortcomings and how the Bureau conducted the investigation. I'll have much more on that tomorrow. Number two, investigators in Florida and Saudi Arabia are digging deeper into the background of that Saudi aviation student who fatally shot three people and wounded eight others 
at a naval base in Pensacola, Florida on Friday. The FBI revealed yesterday afternoon that it is investigating this incident as an act of terrorism. Officials sought to reassure Pensacola residents that they know of no ongoing threat in the area, saying that while investigators pursue a wide variety of interviews and evidence, there was only one gunman behind the violence. On the third day of the investigation into the attack at a base where the U.S. military trains pilots from foreign forces, details on what's been learned so far were sparse, tentative, and sometimes even contradictory. Here's what we know. The gunman, a Royal Saudi Air Force member named Ahmed Mohammed al-Shamrani, apparently left hints that he was motivated, at least in part, by his hatred of American foreign policy and military might. Investigators say they believe Shamrani was the author of an anti-American screed posted on Twitter shortly before the shooting. Now, Trump's impulse to defend the Saudi regime after one of the kingdom's officers killed Americans has isolated him from members of his own party, especially in Florida. Trump has used his appearances before television cameras and on Twitter since Friday to repeatedly offer cover for the Saudis, conveying Riyadh's condolences with what seemed like more fervor than he used in relaying his personal feelings about the shooting. Even Congressman Matt Gates, normally one of Trump's staunchest allies on the Hill, was among several officials from the state pushing on Sunday for more stringent scrutiny of foreigners who come to the U.S. for military training. Gates also suggested that the incident should change America's relationship with Saudi Arabia. Now, Trump, who often jumps to label shootings by foreigners from Muslim-majority countries as terrorism, has not done so. Florida Senator Rick Scott, a Republican, immediately labeled the shooting as terrorism, and he's calling for a halt in the military program that brings hundreds of foreign nationals to U.S. bases each year to train alongside our troops. Several other Saudis who were also training on the base have been questioned by the FBI. And Defense Secretary Mark Esper said yesterday that some of the trainees filmed the shooting. Speaking on Fox News, Scott called on the Saudi government to provide more support than they have been for the investigation. So what's going on here? The president has personally chafed and repeatedly chafed at the idea of not being able to sell arms to Saudi Arabia, even as lawmakers across the aisle have repeatedly condemned the kingdom's human rights record in the wake of the grisly murder of Washington Post contributing columnist Jamal Khashoggi and civilian casualties from the Saudi-led coalition's bombing campaign in Yemen. Democrats tried to restrict arms sales to Saudi Arabia as part of the military budget deal that was negotiated last week, but the White House pushed back and rejected the idea. The president has been especially blunt in describing his transactional approach to foreign affairs, particularly in the Middle East, where his interests in oil, arms deals, and terrorism intersect. Number three, the World Anti-Doping Agency Executive Committee voted today in Switzerland to bar Russia from competing at the next two Olympic Games. The decision means Russia will have no formal presence at next year's Summer Games or the 2022 Winter Games in Beijing. Similar to the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, Russians who have not been implicated in the country's state-sponsored doping scheme will be allowed to compete in Tokyo as unaffiliated athletes. In Pyeongchang, 168 Russians competed as, quote, Olympic athletes from Russia. After being banned from the 2018 Games, the country and its Russian anti-doping agency were conditionally reinstated in September 2018. But then, earlier this year, Russian officials were caught manipulating data from its Moscow anti-doping laboratory 
and then misleading investigators, prompting a new chapter in a years-long doping saga that continues to roil the international sports community. And here's something else that broke overnight, which we're monitoring. At least five people have died and many more remain unaccounted for after a volcano erupted on an island off the coast of New Zealand. Fewer than 50 visitors were on or near White Island at the time of the eruption. 23 people have been rescued so far, authorities say. And among the people transported to shore, many have serious burn injuries. A number have been taken to hospitals. But dangerous conditions have prevented rescuers from reaching the island to try and get everyone else. The area is unstable and more eruptions are possible. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, December 9th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Have a great day. I'll talk to you tomorrow. If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry are in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. You can subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. 